Okay, we are at Masechet Sukkah, Daf Vav, and uh, we are talking about uh, two topics today. Number one is uh, Shi'urim, measurements in general, and their derivation. And second, we're, look, we're going to talk about how many walls are required in a Sukkah. So just to remind ourselves where we are, uh, we were talking about the minimum height of a sukkah, which is 10 tevachim, and we already saw two answers. One is that we're learning it from the height of the aron, plus its cover, the kaporet, and the second answer is actually we're learning from the empty space that's beneath the wings of the kiruvim. And we said, okay, that works according to some opinions, according to Bimeir, but not a biuda. Um, and so then we said, actually, measurements are halacha l'moshe misinai. So according to the Biuda, hilcheta gemirila. All measurements in the Torah are not, do not have an explicit source in the Torah, but are learned by oral tradition. And so now we're going to spend the first half of the daf uh, analyzing this statement. Damar bichia bar amar rav, shiurin, hasisin, umchisin, so we have three categories, um, measurements, meaning the minimum measurement for one to be liable for various things. Chatzitzin, something that is an interposition. Uh, when someone goes to the mikveh, the water has to touch their skin and their hair directly, and there can't be anything in between. So what is defined? How do you define what is, a, what is an interposition, what is not? That is a part of the oral tradition. And mechitzot, that's what we're talking about here. Mechisot, how, what is a considered a wall? What is considered a partition? All these three categories are halacha Moshe Sinai and not explicit in the Torah. And so therefore the sukkah and how big the sukkah should be would fall under the mechisot. Okay, so but now that we quoted this, we're going to quote it in depth. Um, this is a sukkah that was parallel already. We saw it in the beginning of Masechet Eruvin. So here we have. Hold on, how, Rav, how could you say, this is all in the name of Rav, the first generation Amora, how can you say that uh, measurements uh, are uh, part of the oral tradition, they're actually explicit in the Torah. Here we have a list, um, now if we read this, we wouldn't categorize this as a legal pasuk, uh, rather, it's praising the land of Israel, a land that has wheat and barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. It's a beautiful land that has all wonderful things. However, Rav Chanin understood this as in a legal sense that each of the items mentioned on, in this pasuk is coming to teach us one or another size of a, 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 of a measurement for a certain halacha. It's actually something quite beautiful about this derasha, uh, which is that every time that uh, we eat something or measure something, wherever we're doing, we're always thinking of the fruits uh, that Israel is blessed with. So um, even all these measurements that we do, might do all day long, uh, are constant reminders of our love for Israel. Okay, so it's really a beautiful way to do this. So let's go through each one and see what halacha, what do we need to know from a wheat? Okay, the first one is a little bit complicated, not, not very. The wheat is, uh, has to do with a house that um, has a mold patch on it, and then therefore everything in the house becomes tameh. Someone who walks into the house becomes tameh. 
but the person that walks in, it depends how long he stays in the house. There are two levels of Tum'ah, uh, depending on how long he stays in there. So the Mishnah, Ditnan says, Haniknas lebaita menuga bechelav al kitefav vesandalav vetabeotav beado hu vehen temein miyad. Someone walks into a house that has been uh, deemed by a kohen to be a uh, a, a, a sadat house. So he and all the clothing that he's wearing and his shoes and the and the rings that he's wearing. Um, uh, uh, sorry, not wearing. Okay, the first category is he's holding clothes in his hands um, and he's uh, holding his shoes and he's holding his ring in his hands and he's not wearing them. So he becomes Tameh immediately and all the things that he's holding become Tameh immediately. That's case number one. Case number two. If he enters and he's wearing the clothing and he's wearing the shoes and he's wearing the ring on his finger, then then he becomes, his body becomes immediately, but the other items that he's wearing do not become Tameh immediately, only if he stays there for a few minutes. How long does he need to stay there before all the clothing becomes Tameh and shoes and rings? The amount of time it would, eat, it would take to eat, half, uh, um, to eat half of a loaf. And what kind of loaf? A wheat loaf, as opposed to barley. A wheat bread is easier to, to eat, uh, faster to eat than barley and not so not barley bread. And it's while you're reclining that you're concentrating on eating. So that makes it faster also. And you're eating it with a relish, with some tahine or baba ganoush, which also, also makes it easier to eat. So it's a rel relatively short time, maybe just uh, five or 10 minutes. And so if you stay in the house for that long, then all the things that you're wearing become tameh. What's the source for this whole idea that there should be two different times? It actually comes right from the Pesukim in Vayikra Yudalid, uh, which talk about Sara'at. The first Pasuk says, Haba el habayit kol oto Anyone who comes into the house for one second, second you come into the house, that person is Tameh. But then the next Pasuk says, If you stay in the house for longer, um, and use it, so either sleep in it or eat in it. So what do you mean eat in it? So the rabbis derive the amount it would take, of time it would take to eat half of a loaf, and the type of loaf is a wheat, um, wheat flour loaf. So there you go, that's eres chita. When we want to talk about a chita, we have to know um, about uh, wheat and how long it takes to eat uh, the, uh, the, 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 the wheat. That's the, that's the chita. Next, se'ora. Barley, what, what do we need a barley size for? That when you have a, um, a, a corpse uh, that imparts impurity, a human body, uh, then if it's a size, if you have a, even one bone from it and the bone is the size of a barley, it will make tameh anyone who touches it or carries it. You can carry something without touching it if you carry it like in a box. 
So if it's the size of a se'ora, a barley grain, or bigger, it will make someone, someone tameh. However, it will not cause tum'ah in an ohil, uh, when a, a, a body or part of a body is in a room or in a tent, it makes everything else in that tent tameh also, but for that you need a, a larger shi'ur of a kezayit or more. So there you go, that's, the, uh, that's what we have, eres chita u'se'ora, that's the barley. Um, and next, next we have uh, gefen, uh, we use um, wine to, uh, to know that uh, of wine, a nazir, if a nazir is not allowed to have any wine, but if he has a riviit of wine, then he will, be, he will be liable to lashes. And so now we have, that's the gefen. Um, next, te'ena, a size of a fig, a dried fig. You're not allowed to carry on Shabbat, and if you're carrying something that's food, if it's only a tiny bit, there's no punishment. If you carry this amount of food that would be equivalent to the volume of a dried fig, then that person would be liable. Similarly, although it doesn't say it here, if someone would cook on Shabbat enough food that would be the size of a te'ena, then that person would be liable. So there we go, te'ena. Now, rimon, pomegranate. What, what, what do we measure with, as with a pomegranate? Okay, if you have a pot or a bowl, a, a bowl can become tameh if it touch, something tameh touches it. The only way, let's say it's pottery, the only way to make it uh, tahor again is to break it, meaning it has to be unusable. So only something that is a usable vessel takes, becomes tameh. Once it's unusable, it's no longer tameh. So we're dealing with a, a bowl uh, that gets holes in it. So if it has a few little holes in it, that is still usable. Although a, um, uh, although a storekeeper would not keep such a, uh, you know, someone who's selling uh, pots would not keep it. But a homeowner, that's what we talk about, even if it has a little holes, he'll put something bigger in it. And, uh, he'll put, uh, and even if it has pretty big holes, he'll even put pomegranates in it. And so it's still usable. However, once a bowl has holes in it that are bigger than a pomegranate, then even a balabait is no longer going to use it, and that um, and that bowl is considered unusable, and therefore it's no longer can no longer can receive tameh. It becomes tahor. So that's the law. That's why we have pomegranates. Ne- next we go. We have the word eretz again. We say erezet shemen eretz shekol shiurah kazetim. I think it's trying to explain why the word eretz is repeated in the pasuk. So zet shemen is one thing olive oil, and this is a land that all of the measurements are like, uh, are, uh, follow uh, olives. Now we ask, what do you mean all measurements are the size of olives? We just had a whole, whole list of things that were not, that were like wheat and barley and pomegranates. What we meant to say is that almost, uh, most of the items in the Torah, the law is kezayit. So kezayit applies to anything that the Torah says you're not allowed to eat, um, uh, be it fats, chelev, uh, pigul, um, all kinds of things. The definition of eating is kezayit, so that's why that is a very significant uh, measurement. And that's why it says edits, uh, again, with zet shemen. And lastly, devash. Devash does not mean uh, bee honey. It can mean that, but more us- usually it means date syrup. 
so or something that comes from dates. So what is that good for? A big date is the um, minimum size that one would be liable if that person ate on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is different because the definition is not eating. Uh, you are only liable when one is uh, feels no longer afflicted, right? It has to be le'anot. Um, and so if you eat just a kezayit, you still feel hungry and afflicted. But once you eat uh, this a date size, which is a little bit more, then you no longer feel afflicted. And so that, that violates Yom Kippur. Okay, so that, that we went through this list. Um, we, we asked the question, how come up above you said that shiurim are halacha Moshe misinai? Here we have, uh, here we have a pasuk from Sefer Devarim that, uh, that delineates all the measurements and shows that they are in fact in the Torah, not halacha Moshe misinai. So that's a good question. Here's the answer. Hold on, does it really say the shiurim? Right, it doesn't give any application to what they, uh, what they are for, for tum'ah, for eating. Uh, so it's just giving sizes, um, it's just giving fruits. It's not really applying it to any halakha. So we really can't derive anything from the pasuk. You can't call this a, a deoraita. Rather, this is, uh, this is a halacha, this is part of the oral tradition, and the fact that Rav Hanin uh, connected it to a pasuk, that was just a asmachta, literally means to support. You can think of it as a mnemonic device, or you can think of it as giving it um, some added authority by connecting it with the pasuk. When you're thinking about it, when you're teaching it, people associate with the pasuk, and then they'll be um, they'll take it more seriously. Uh, but the actual derivation is not from the pasuk, but rather from the oral tradition. So that's a very important concept of asmachta here. Okay, good. So now that we know that um, the measurements um, are actually not explicit in the Torah, we move on to the next thing in the list. Um, because Rav also said that chatzitzin, uh, things that interpose between one's skin and other items uh, on the skin, all those laws are part of the oral tradition. Hold on, we ask. The pasuk says that the mesora has to wash, has, wash his flesh in water. Um, meaning in a mikveh, and it says his flesh. So therefore, his flesh has to actually be touching all the water. And we learn from that in a baraita uh, that there can't be anything interposing between the water and his flesh. So there you go. It's actually in the Torah. So why do you tell me that it's part of the oral tradition? Ask the question. Oh, you know what the halakha is? You're right. We learned from the pasuk about skin, but the pasuk doesn't say anything about hair. But hair is also a problem. If someone has some uh, you know, glue stuck to their hair um, and they go to the mikveh, no good. That would be in the interposition. And that's why we need the oral tradition to teach us about hair. Another example of an interposition of hair, besides uh, glue or gum, um, is hair itself. If, uh, if you take one strand of hair and, uh, and make a knot in it, so that knot is going to be pretty tight and uh, water will not be able to enter. So therefore, uh, knots in hair are called a hatzitza. He adds that if it's three strands that are together and tied, then that's okay. 
because if it's three strands, that's thick enough that that knot is not going to be tight. It's going to be, it's going to undo itself. It's going to be loose. Uh, so three would be okay. If it's two strands, he doesn't know. That's kind of in between. Is it tight enough to be chatzisa or not? He doesn't know. Anyway, the point is that um, uh, that uh, chatzitza applies not only to skin, but also to hair. And that's why we need the halacha Moshe misinai. Okay, then we ask about that. Not good enough because we have the word extra word et, which comes to add something, not only flesh, not only skin, but something else. What is it adding? That which is a subsidiary to one's skin, and that is hair. So hair is also in the Torah. So why are, you, why are you telling me that it's an oral tradition? What do we need the oral tradition? What is it adding to the Torah? By the way, this is all very interesting, right? Because it's saying that even when you derive something from the word et, that's still considered the oraita. Um, and uh, you know, Rambam, Rambam does not agree with every time that you derive something that is necessarily considered the oraita, unless the Talmud says so explicitly. And this would be a good example of the Torah saying, we learned from et and it is the oraita here. Um, okay. But anyway, that's considered Doraita, if it even uh, has a, uh, any word attached to it. So what do we need the oral tradition for? For Rabbi Yitzchak, Tamar Rabbi Yitzchak. Devar Torah, Rubo, Umakpid Alav, Choses. Besheeno Makpid Alav, Eno Choses. Vegazru al Rubo, Sheeno Makpid, Mishum Rubo Makpid, Val Miuto Makpid, Mishum Rubo Hamakpid. This is a very important halacha that uh, is very relevant today. Uh, when for women have to go to the mikveh. So according to Torah law, um, if someone has something on their skin that covers most of the majority of their body and their makpid, meaning they would rather it not be there, then it is a chatzitsa. Uh, for example, a painter, right, uh, who paints in shorts and short sleeves and gets, or no shirt, and gets paint all over him. And he, he doesn't want the paint to be there. And he needs to go to the, go to the mikveh uh, with the paint on him. And it's on, it's on most of his body. That is no good. On the midoraita level. Okay. However, if you don't have both of those, but only one, if, um, right. If you don't care about it, but something that you like having on your body, uh, maybe like uh, lotion, um, uh, uh, something like that, then it's not a chatzitza. And the rabbis come and they make a gezerah. Uh, if it's something on the majority of the body that you don't care about, even though medoraita, that's okay, the rabbis say it's no good. And also, if it's on a little part of the body and you do care about it, is still no good because of something that might be on the majority of one's body that you do care about it. So therefore, if you have both conditions, it's a sumidoraita. One condition or the other, it's a surmidirabanan. If you have none of the conditions, so that's the next thing, what if it's only on a little part of the body and you like it, you don't mind it being there. Uh, a good example of this is nail polish. Nail polish is only on a little bit, little part of the body. And let's say it's nice, fresh nail polish that someone wants, not only doesn't want to take it off, but actually wants it to be there. Then it does not fall not even under a banan. 
So, so we ask, why not make a further gezerah even for that case? Make a gezerah for this case when you have none of them, for uh, something that you do, don't want to be there, or make a gezerah of like nail polish for something that would cover the whole body. So we say, no, we're not going to make such a gezerah. The case is when you have one condition or the other, either something on the whole body or something that you don't want to be there. That itself is a gezerah for the case when you have both conditions. The rabbis have a general rule. They don't make a fence uh, of a fence, right? You make one fence for a doraita so you don't fall off the cliff. You don't have to make another fence because you might violate the rabbanan. The rabbanan in the first place was a fence and therefore that case would be allowed. Um, so this is uh, very relevant, although the widespread custom is for women to remove their nail polish altogether um, in circumstances where it's very necessary, um, many poskim permit, uh, permit a, a going to the mikveh even with nail polish uh, because it's a little bit part of the body and the person wants it to be there. Um, okay, so that's a good example. We could apply, apply this to many other examples like um, um, uh, casts and, uh, and stitches and um, a hair dye, things like that. A little hair dye is very complicated because um, if it's on most of the hair, the hair is considered separately from the body. It's also no good. So the only way to permit hair dye is to say it actually is permanent and goes into the hair. It doesn't, not really on top of it and can't rub off. Okay, so this is, gets into a lot of complicated halachot, but this is the major source for these. Okay, now mechitzin. Now we get to the third category that we mentioned that um, uh, partitions are halacha lemoshe misinai. And we says, ha damaran, right? This is what we talked about earlier uh, regarding the 10 hand breaths of a sukkah. So this is fine according to the biyuda because the biyuda had no other source for it. The biyuda was the one that said there are five tefachim to every ama. And so he, there was no other way to, to uh, derive this. But Rabbi Meir said that there are six tefachim to every ama, and therefore, according to Rabbi Meir, you can learn the height of, uh, of a wall for a sukkah from the space between uh, uh, of the kiruvim from foot to its from the feet to its head above uh, below the wingspan, and so we have a source for ready. Uh, uh, we have a source midoraita for that. So the, therefore, the question is, according to the Bimeir, why would you say, uh, why did we say that this, that mechitzot are also halachal Sinai? And the answer is, ki hilcheta legod velabud akuma. Oh, so this, these are things that we don't, we don't have a source for in the Torah. These three important principles that were going to come up a lot in the Masechet Sukkah. Number one is God, God Asik or God Achit. The God means a wall, and a wall, at once is ten tefachim, we can imagine that it extends up and that it extends down. So that is something not obvious. We learned it from oral law. Lavud, if, the, if there's any space that's less than three tefachim, we consider it connected, as if it's all filled in. So if you have a wall with holes in it, as long as the holes are less than three tefachim, it's like filled in. And dofen akuma, a crooked, a curved wall, which means if you have um, a roofing that is uh, not kosher schach, and it's at the edge of the wall, uh, within four amot, we can make believe as if the wall itself is just bent. It's okay, sometimes walls are crooked, and we can consider that all part of the wall, and therefore the 
tzchach that comes after that is considered like it's uh, touching uh, the wall, so that becomes a kosher sukkah. Okay, so therefore, we have all three categories, and uh, for each one of them, although there are some aspects that we learn from the Torah, there are other aspects that we learn from the oral tradition, uh, except for the first category of measurements, we decided that that was an asmachta. Okay, excellent. So now we get to the next halacha of the Mishnah. Mishnah says, If you don't have three walls, at least a minimum of three walls to a sukkah, it's no good. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to actually see a machloket about this. So the Rabbanan say, um, are uh, explaining that when the Mishnah says three walls, it doesn't mean three full walls. All you need is two kehil chatan, which means standard walls, full walls that are touching each other. Uh, and shlishit, the third wall, can even be a little piece of a wall. And we can see a, a picture of that here, one, two wall, and the last one can just be a little piece. Uh, very good. And that is the Tanakama. Um, Rabbi Shimon says, no, no, I disagree. I, th- I think you need three full walls and only the fourth one can be partial, just a tefach. I wonder if Rabbi Shimon is arguing with the Mishnah or explaining the Mishnah. They may be saying that when the Mishnah says three walls, he means three full walls, but you also need a sliver for the other one. Or maybe he's just arguing on the Mishnah. Sounds more like he's arguing because the fourth wall, the, the sliver is considered uh, somehow a, a, a wall. Okay, so that's the, that's the machloket. Do you need um, three uh, or four? Or another, another way to say it, do you need two and a half or three and a half walls? Okay, so now we're going to look for the source uh, of them. Bemai kami palge, right? What are, how are they, what, what are they disagreeing? What is the source of their disagreement? We're going to see five answers to this. There are some words in the Torah that are written one way, but we pronounce them a different way. If you give priority to the way it's written, that's called yesh em la masoret. There is the mother, we call it the mother for this for some reason. We say binyan av, but we give the mothers a chance too. So there is authority, it means, for the masoret means the way it's written, the spelling. And the Bishamon says we give authority uh, to the mikra, the way it's read, the way it's pronounced. And so let's apply that here. It says the words in the Torah, in the two Pesukim, back to back, this is Parashat Emor, by Ikra 23, it says, you see that's spelled chaser, without a vav. Uh, again, it's spelled no vav. But the next pasuk, and here it's, it's written male with a vav. Uh, now, really, they mean the same thing. And the truth is that no matter how you write it, it's still going to be technically a plural because it's not basuka. Um, the taf tells you it is basukot. Uh, it's not a semichut here. But nevertheless, we are so, there has to be some difference between a with a vav and without a vav. So when it's with a vav, we consider that to be plural, that's two. Whereas the other one, bisukat, uh, is considered as if it's one. 
And so what are you going to, how are you going to count them? As if it's one or if it's, as if it's two. So Rabbanan says, we're going to look at the way it's written. Basukat is one. Basukat is another one. Basukat is another two. That's four altogether. So there's four indications of a sukkah. Dal had the We have to take one away, one from these four we have to take away, just to teach us the basic law itself that you have to sit in the sukkah. It's not extra. We can't use it for talk about walls. So take one away. We have three left over, and therefore we need three walls. Although the Torah has says three times sukkah, and we learn it has to be three walls, we explain that that means two full walls, and the oral law will say, listen, the third wall, you can get away with just a partial wall. How much is a partial wall? wall? A tefach. Okay, something that at least you can see. So that's the source for Rabbanan that are following the written spelling. Rabbi Shimon says we're going to follow the way it's pronounced, and they're all pronounced basukot in plural. So three words, each one is plural. That's six. One of the words we have to take away just to teach us the basic law that we have to have a sukkah. So take away one word, that takes away a, a plural word. So in the end, you have just two words, each of them are plural, that makes four. So what did we learn from four? Shalosh kilchatan So I know I need four walls, but um, the Torah will tell me I need three. The oral law will say the fourth can be partial and that is a tefach. And that's how you get, that's how the Bishimon gets uh, four walls uh, all together. So that's all derivation number one. But we we're going to have fun with this and try out more possibilities. We don't want to pigeonhole one to be Masoret and one to be Mikra. So we say, Maybe everybody agrees that we follow the spelling. Sorry, Mikra, the way it's read, right? Likrot, uh, the way it's pronounced. So since we're going to go by the way it is um, read, and it's read in plural, so there's three words in plural, but we have to take one away because we need it for the sukkah itself. So therefore we have two words, both are plural, that's four. And the Morsaba, that's Tanakama, he thinks that one of the words, one of those four uh, uh, instances, we need for the schach. I mean, the, the word sukkah doesn't mean wall, it means sukkah. And uh, actually, uh, so the word schach and the word sukkah come from the same root, uh, which means to protect, which means to protect. So therefore, out of the out of the 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 six instances, two of them are associated with one word. We need that for the basic law. The other four, we need one for the schach, and we have three more to teach us the walls. And that's going to be three walls, which means two and a half. Uh, that's the first. And then, Morsabar, that's Bishimon, he thinks, I don't need a pasuk to tell me that I need sechach. That's part of the basic law. That's built into the basic law. You're going to have a sukkah. Obviously, it's going to have a roof. And so he can use all four of the remaining words for the walls. So that's answer number two. Now, answer number three. On the other way around, everyone agrees that we're going to follow the Masoret of the written spelling. So if you follow the written word, we have three words altogether. We need one of them to teach us the basic law. So we're left with one sukkat and one sukkot. 
So that's uh, one singular, one plural. That's three altogether. So I have three altogether. And one says, the Tanakama says, the oral law says you can make one of them into a partial wall. So that's two and a half walls. Whereas Rabbi Shimon says, the, I need three walls. And the oral law comes not to subtract, but to add. And so I need three plus a little bit. So that's how you get three and a half uh, walls. Okay, and now we have the fourth answer. Maybe everybody agrees, yes, that the oral law is coming to take away. And indeed, we're following the way it's written, um, which means there's only four instances altogether, right? Two singulars and one plural, that's four. And the question is, that one that we kept taking away for the basic law, well, that, that's not so clear because the first opinion, one opinion can say, even though that word is telling us the basic law, I can use it for double service and it can teach us, it can also serve as one of them. So that's the Bishimon will be the first opinion here that says that the first sukkah will teach us the basic law of sukkah and count to tell me about one of the walls and another one for another one of the walls and one plural, that's four walls altogether and the oral law will make it three and a half. And the other says, I need one of the words to tell me the basic law of a sukkah. I only have three words left over and the oral law will come and tell me not three, but two and a half. And finally, the last way we derive it, this one different pasuk altogether from Yeshaya, a pasuk that we mentioned before, that a sukkah will be for shade during the day and a refuge from storm and from rain. So if it's going to keep you dry from rain, obviously it has to have four walls. Otherwise, the rain is going to come in from whatever open wall there is. Um, so therefore, to be Shimon learns, you, have, you need four walls. Now we can ask, hey, to be Shimon, how can you learn a, uh, how can you learn a halacha from Nevi'im, from Yeshaya? But he could answer, he's not actually learning the law, but rather simply the definition. Says the word sukkah here, what's the definition of a sukkah? Something that will keep you dry. It can only keep you dry if you have four walls. Okay. So that's the five different ways that we derive the law of how many walls that, how many walls we need. And now we'll just go on a little bit more. Okay, that, let's, let's go assume according to the banan, you have two full walls and one little bit, uh, one little tefach. Where do you put that tefach? There's lots of different options. Where is it supposed to go? You put it connected to the edge of one of the other walls so that it will look like this, right? Either on the edge here or on the edge here at a 90 degree angle. So it's kind of like just the beginning of uh, whatever imaginary wall would have been there. That is what Rav says. So these two students said, hold on, why are you doing it that way? Why not put it on an angle? So instead of, instead of a 90 degree angle, make it a 45 degree angle. It's called Rosh Tor. Apparently when they use, Tor means uh, an ox, Shor. Shin in Hebrew is equivalent to Taf in Aramaic. So the head of an ox, apparently when they used, when they dug furrows um, and they got to the end of the field, they would, the furrows would get smaller and smaller and it would be some kind of diagonal. 
So this is called a diagonal. So you would, you would take the diagonal here and why not make the tefach that way? Um, I guess the question is, it seems more, it looks, uh, 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 it looks like it's connecting with the other wall better when you put it on an angle rather than put it, uh, put it on the 90 degree angle. So that is their question. And Rav didn't say anything. So we don't know what that means. If he doesn't say anything, does that mean he doesn't have a good answer to it? Does that mean he thinks it's uh, not worth answering? Does that mean he agrees? I don't know. But anyway, we have another tradition similar that says that means on a 90 degree angle, just like Rav says. And also in the Bet Midrash, this is when the people were asking about this, they said, yes, you put it at the edge of one, so it has to be connected to one of the walls, and it has to be on a 90 degree angle from the wall. So that's our conclusion for today, although tomorrow we'll see some other options about putting the this tefach in other spots um, in, the, in that empty area. So uh, we saw today, to sum up, uh, one halakha about all the shiurim, well, are they from Midoraita or from the oral tradition, including chatzitzot um, and the mechitza, that is part of the, uh, which aspect of them are part of the oral tradition. And then we saw the various sources for requiring three, or interestingly, according to the Bishimon, uh, three and a half uh, walls and the law of the tefach. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.